my dear mother, who died in May of 2022, was among many things a woman of fervent prayer. And if you spent any time with her in prayer, you would probably notice that she began most seasons of prayer by expressing the words, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. And those words for my mom weren't mere ritual expressions like we sometimes fall into. They meant something deep to her. They flowed out of her great thankfulness and deep appreciation for God as loving Father. See, my mom's earthly father was an alcoholic who died in his early 40s while my mom was still a teen. It wasn't until my mom was 14 years old that she was invited to church by a neighborhood friend, and she first heard about and believed in the existence of a heavenly father who loved her deeply, so much that he sent his eternal son to meet her greatest need, to provide her with forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and entrance into his family as his child. And this changed everything for her and began a decades-long journey of walking with him and growing in appreciation and being transformed by his fatherly love. God desires every follower of Jesus to see, to believe in, and to be changed, to live in light of his fatherly love. As we begin this morning, I ask you, do you see God as loving Father? Do you believe that deep in your soul? Do you live in light of His fatherly love? And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And to do so, we're going to look at this passage that Brian read already, one of the most beautiful expressions of this truth in all of Scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, if you would join me there. Now, in the flow of the context, these verses serve to provide the Christian community with assurance that on the day when Jesus returns again, they will not shrink back in fear and shame, but rather they will stand confidently because, chapter 2, verse 28, they are remaining in Him. And therefore, they are, will be standing in Christ's righteousness on that day. Number 2, verse 29 of chapter 2, because their lives bear the fruit, the evidence that they have been born of God. And that little phrase at the end of chapter 2, verse 29 where he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. That's one of John's favorite phrases he uses to describe this miracle of the new birth that all those who follow Jesus experience. And using that phrase launches him into chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, a reflection on one of the most beautiful implications that is true for those who have been born of Him. We are children of God. And that's our text this morning, verses 1 through 3. And I want to share with you three affirmations that I'm drawing from this text with some application, of course, along the way. And the first affirmation this morning is simply this. And this text 
is directed particularly to those who follow Jesus, who are identifying as Christians. And he says to us, number one, the first affirmation, God identifies you as his child. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard that language so often, perhaps when you hear that, you think, really, that's what you're going to tell me? That's nothing new. In fact, you might even kind of feel a little like, oh, yeah, we know. To help us maybe recapture a little of the wonder of it, let me use this illustration, and I do so respectfully. Imagine God having a conversation with someone. And that someone in the conversation mentions you by name. And when God hears your name, with a sparkle in his eye, with delight in his voice, with a smile on his face, he says, oh, you know that person? You know Drew? He's one of my sons. You know Amy? She's one of my daughters. You know Bill and Linda? They're a couple of our, my children. That's how God identifies you in relationship to Him. A son, a daughter, one of His children. And John actually assumes that this truth is almost a little bit unbelievable because I love how he says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children or children of God, and so we are. It's almost like, yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. He doesn't just call you His children. You, we really are His children. Believe it. See it. Now, the question that might be raised in our minds is, well, how did this happen? How is it that we knowing who we are by nature, could be considered in this exalted status as children of God. Well, the, the New Testament uses two different metaphors to help us understand how it is that we have come into this great calling of being children of God. John emphasizes the doctrine of the new birth. And that's what he referenced at the end of chapter 2, verse 29, that we are born of God. The new birth is the act by which the, the Spirit of God gives us the gift of new spiritual life on the basis of what Jesus did for us. His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His glorious resurrection. And on the basis of that, the Spirit of God gives us the gift of a new heart, new life, by which we are born into God's family. Much like a woman who might be carrying a child in her womb, and she gives birth to that child, and now that child is born into a family and becomes part of that family. That's the metaphor. We are born into the family of God, and now we are His sons and daughters. And John says in John chapter 1, verse 12, that this, we experience this through faith. He says in John 1.12, as many as received him, Jesus, to them, those who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So it's as we come to trust in Jesus alone as God's provision for us, a forgiveness of sins, that we discover we are born into the family as one of his children. 
It's a miracle. It's a gift of grace. James 1 verse 18 says, God of His own choice gave us the new birth. It's not something we earn. It's something God gives to us. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly talks about the new birth quite a bit, but when he talks about our position as children of God, his emphasis is on the the doctrine of adoption. For example, Galatians chapter 4, he says, at the right time, God sent His Son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, so that we who've been redeemed might receive adoption as sons. So what is adoption? Adoption is a legal act by which God places us into His family, though we are not by nature in that family. He places us in that family with all of the status, rights, privileges, inheritance, and responsibilities that come with it. And so if you're a child of God today, you are so because of these two miracles that have happened. There there was a point in time that the language implies that you should be called, that's a past tense, there was a point in time where you were not His child, but you began to be called His child, and that happened when, because God gave you the new birth, the miracle of new life, where you were born into His family, God placed you into His family as son or daughter through adoption. Now one word of application for us is, notice again verse 1 where He says, and we are. God wants us as His children to find our identity in that status. As humans... We often fall into the performance trap and find our identity either in what we achieve in this world or on a spiritual level in how well we're doing spiritually, how well we're measuring up. And we feel more like His child or less like His child based on performance. On the other hand, the world is also telling us to try to look inward and figure out our identity at kind of a psychological level. Who am I really? And then, as I discover that, let me live authentically to that. Now, there's certainly something good about self-reflection and understanding ourselves more. But what the Scripture does is call us to look outside of ourselves to, to understand our identity. Namely, to look at who God says we are in Christ. And to live our lives rooted securely in that reality. And so we can live our lives securely knowing this present tense reality, verse 1, we are children of God. So when you wake up tomorrow morning tired, or maybe if you're off tomorrow Tuesday morning, tired and not quite sure you want to head into work, Maybe it's a job you hate. Maybe it's a job you love. You're still God's child. As you live this week and face the ups and downs of the week, the blessings and the challenges and trials, you're God's child. As you struggle against sin and our weakness as human beings, with sometimes success, other times you stumble, you're still God's child. We are in a position of sons and daughters of God, and it's out of that that we are to live 
our lives. And so God wants us to know and to, to understand and to believe that He identifies us as sons and daughters, as His children. Secondly, second affirmation this morning is this. Your identification as God's child is irrefutable demonstration of God's love for you. That's kind of the driving point of the text here. Notice how verse 1 begins. See, look, behold, look carefully. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. The word see is a command to us. God wants us to see this, to to observe it. He doesn't want us to miss it. It's a command with a little bit of an exclamatory feel to it. When I read that that word, for some reason I always think of a, uh, a moment I had with a childhood friend. I was about seventh grade, I think. Uh, His name was Stanley. We played basketball together a lot. And it was an evening. We had been playing uh, basketball together. And uh, we lived in a rural area at the time, so the stars were bright. And we were standing there talking afterwards. And suddenly, he points to the sky and with an exclamation and urgency that I wasn't used to from him, says, look. And he said it with such urgency, I couldn't help but listen to his command. I usually didn't listen to him very much. So I I turned around and looked, and I saw my first shooting star. It's a cool moment as a kid. The urgency of his exclamation caught my attention, so I didn't miss it. And that's what God is saying here. Please, see this. Don't miss it. And notice what it says, see what kind of, what sort of, see how great his love is for us. That word great or what sort of is a fascinating little word. It's used uh, by the the disciples in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, when Jesus is with them and there's this vicious storm going on and the, the disciples are filled with panic and Jesus just stands up and completely silences the storm by saying, Peace, be still. He commands the storm to stop. Remember that? And the disciples respond. They're just amazed. And they say, what kind of man is this? It's the same phrase. He's a man, but he's unlike any man we've ever seen before. Who is this? That's the same idea here. What he's saying is... John's saying, what kind of love is this? Have we ever seen or experienced this kind of love before? It's an incredible type of love, unknown among humans, apart from God's revelation of it. It's the kind of love from what we read about, sung about earlier, from which nothing in the created universe can separate us, Romans 8. Nothing. No experience, no enemy, internal, external, can separate us from this kind of love that God has for us. And so, when John talks about God's love and calling us children, he wants us to see and understand that love and be changed by it. You know, when Paul talks about adoption, he ties it to love too. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love... 
he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And then later on in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says that we are to imitate God as dearly loved children. So God didn't just call us a child in a dry legal sense. He loves us as children with a deep, passionate, infinite, unchanging, unending love. You're loved to that degree by God in Christ. Now, as we think about His love displayed by calling us children of God, the very act that God would call us His children is an act of love. But we most clearly see God's love in and through Jesus, especially the cross, which is the means by which He made it possible for us to be His child. And that's what John emphasizes. If you look over at John chapter 4, verse 9, He says this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so we might live through Him. That's a new birth language. You see that? Live through Him. Love consists in this, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then back uh, a chapter to chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we have come to know love. He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. And so the ultimate way we see and experience and believe that love is by seeing what God did in order to make a path for us to be brought into His family, to be set free from um, being uh, spiritually outside His family, to be brought into His family through the work of Jesus uh, on the cross for us. Now, do you see that love? Do you see it? Do you believe it? It's true. It's irrefutable. Look to the cross if you ever doubt the extent of God's love for you. What kind of love is that that the creator of the universe would enter into the brokenness of this world and draw near to us in our suffering and take upon himself our sin so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life and be called his child? What kind of love is that? The third affirmation this morning is this. As good as this is, the best is yet to come. Now don't miss the as good as this is. The Christian life isn't just a misery until heaven. Being a child of God here and now is filled with all kinds of blessings as we journey through this what's really a hard life. But, but John really wants, so John really wants to stress, we are now God's child. There's this cool thing he's doing with the tenses. He says, uh, what kind of love that we have that we should be called, that's a past tense with continuing effect. Then he says twice, we are now, present tense, God's child. But, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Even though we are His child, we don't, it doesn't yet look like it completely, does it? 
Don't you feel that in your experience? I know I do. As we struggle through life with our physical, emotional, and spiritual weaknesses, our sin, so much of what we do, think, and say fails to align with our status as God's child. At least it does for me. And when that happens, that may flood us with doubts and discouragements. Well, John reaffirms, no, we are God's child, but there's something we can be completely confident of, something to know. We know something. And that is that one day, when we see Jesus with our eyes, in His very presence, we will be like Him. Uh, there's a gentleman at our church who just loves our church, loves the community, loves the worship, the preaching. And he says once in a while, in, in a moment of just delight, he'll say, wow, all this in heaven too. So yes, all this, but, but heaven is coming. And with heaven comes the culmination of God's redemptive purpose for saving us our certain future, that His work of redeeming us is brought to fulfillment by making us perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus so that our practical, lived experience aligns with who we are as God's children. That's our future. That's where we're headed. We're gathered today together, many of us followers of Jesus, sons and daughters of God, but none of us look quite like what it will be. That's why we have trouble and problems and conflict and need a lot of love and patience with each other. But one day, all of us here who follow Jesus will be just like Jesus. Romans 8.29 says that whom He foreknew, He also did predestine that we would be conformed to the image of His Son and that He, the Son, would then be firstborn among all the brothers and sisters on that day. He'd be the exalted one. And so God wants us, if you notice the, the verse there, He wants us to live in hope. The assumption is that everyone who has this hope in Him, the hope that one day this journey as a child of God would be brought to completion, and I'm going to be like Jesus. The word hope implies, of course, a confident expectation and assurance and longing in our heart for that day. What does he say, though, in verse 3? There's application for us. He makes a universal statement that's not a command. Verse 3 isn't a command. It's a description. Everyone who has that hope in him, that confident expectation, longing, desire for the day when finally we're like Jesus, Everyone who's living with that hope purifies himself now, even as he is pure. And that makes sense, right? Again, not a command, an assumption, a description. If that is really our hope, that one day I'm going to be like Jesus, I want to be more like him now. I want to experience more of him today. Now, 
This, of course, is not a means of earning his favor because we already are children of God in his favor. This is flowing out of the favor we already enjoy as those who have come into the family as sons and daughters. And so, I want to spend a little bit of time here at the end thinking about how we pursue Jesus now, what it looks like, and then, yes, I'm going to connect it to fostering hope. You don't think I would come and preach and not talk a little bit more about fostering hope. So how is it then that we pursue and become more like Jesus today? Well, the text doesn't say a lot. It simply says, purifies himself even as he is pure. But I think we can make a deduction from the text. If it's when we see Jesus one day, full unveiled vision of Jesus, we will somehow, it doesn't explain how, but somehow be transformed by the Spirit to then be like Him. Wouldn't well, that be amazing? Then it makes sense, it follows that we become more like Him now as we look on Him here. Right? In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says as much when it says, We all with unveiled face beholding as in the glory, the glory of the Lord are transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. As we gaze upon Christ with our eyes clearly seeing through the gospel now, we are changed into that same image. And so it's as we look to Jesus together that we're transformed more into his likeness here and now. That's why your pastors here week after week hold Jesus forward for you to look at, to gaze upon, to hear about. That's why your community, as you spend time together in community, should be centered upon holding Jesus out to each other. You think about the means of grace that we're called to engage in. Prayer, Bible study and meditation, community, worship, the ordinances, uh, on and on. We could go with some of those means of grace. All of them are means of grace because it's there we discover and see more of Jesus. And so as we're in the Word and under the Word and in prayer and in community with each other and seeing the, the gospel uh, fleshed out, visualized through baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're, we're seeing and experiencing more of Jesus and therefore finding more grace there. And so, those who have hope of one day seeing Jesus and being like Him want to live life here and now looking at Jesus and becoming more like Him. So what does it look like then as we become more like Jesus? Well, if you were to read on in this passage uh, into chapters 3 and 4 and 5, James, John is going to talk a lot about sin and commands and obedience, but there's no question, no question in my mind from the text that the ultimate fruit that is displayed by the children of God as they become more like Jesus is the fruit of sacrificial love for others. And you just read on and you see that clear. In fact, some of the passages we already looked at uh, say as much. Look at chapter 3 again. I stop short in verse 16. He says, 
This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he talks about if someone's lacking basic necessities. God's love resides in us when we're willing to meet that need. Chapter 4, verse 7, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone, universal statement, who has been born of God, that's new birth language implying we're children of God and knows God, will love. And then you look at the verse we read earlier, verse chapter 4. God is love, verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God uh, remains in him. In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. And what John is doing here is just reflecting what Jesus said in John 13, for example. When Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my followers if you love one another as I have loved you. And then in chapter 15, he says the same thing. This is my command, verse 12 and 13 of John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So it's not any kind of love. It's the kind of love willing to sacrifice self for the good of others. John 15, 17, this is what I command you, Jesus' words, that you love one another. And every New Testament writer follows this by lifting up love as the great fruit of the Christian life, as the ultimate display that we are part of God's family, that his DNA is within us, flowing out of our own experience of God drawing near to us and laying his life down for us. We become the kind of Christian community that is willing to draw near to those around us in their affliction, in their hurting, and even at cost to ourselves, not because we're the Savior, but because the Savior has drawn near to us and laid his life down for us, we draw near to others and lay our lives down for them. And that's why all through Scripture, God calls his people toward this this path of generous love to others. His people were called to particularly love those in their society who were in places of vulnerability, who were easily forgotten or taken advantage of. The widow, the refugee, the poor, and children who need families. When Jesus comes, the perfect expression of God, because Jesus is God himself, who do you see Jesus continually moving toward and entering into their lives. Those who were outcasts. The leper, ostracized, stay away. Jesus draws near and touches the leper. The poor, the beggar, the Samaritan woman at the well, so ostracized she's alone, drawing water at a different time of day, and yet Jesus had to go be with her and minister to her. The prostitute, 
the tax collector, the sinners. And of course, Jesus is bringing them the gift of spiritual life, but he's also ministering to their physical and earthly needs. And so when we, when we I think you can begin to see the connection between this and our work at Fostering Hope. Caring for kids in need of families is one of the authenticating marks that the Christian community has experienced genuine repentance, Isaiah 1, verse 17. You can look at that in the context. And in James chapter 1, verse 27, it's described as a defining practice of worship that's pure and acceptable in God's eyes. Pure and undefiled religion or worship is this to look after the widow and orphan in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's that, that, that's a call to enter into, to draw near the affliction of the most, two most vulnerable demographics of that day, the widow and the orphan. Considered almost worthless in that day. But James says actually the, the, the mark of pure and undefiled worship flowing out of in the text, your experience of the new birth, James 1.18, is that you would actually, like Jesus drew near to you, enter into that affliction for their good to look after them, to care for them. Outward acts that reflect the very God we worship, a God who's so exalted and high and glorious and all that he is, and yet he enters into this world and draws near and loves and lays his life down. And it's that that is what ultimately compels our work at Fostering Hope. We believe that as long as there are children in our community who need families, either temporarily or permanently, the Christian community must be part of the solution. As an act of genuine worship and as a response to Jesus laying his life down for us, our faith compels us to move toward them, to look after them. Not as a means of earning God's favor, as I've already said. We have his favor. As a means out of the overflow of the favor we've experienced. And you know, as we do our work with churches, we know that not everyone is called to actually receive kids into their home. But that is an urgent need. We believe it's unjust That as a society, we would remove a child from their family because we deem that family to be at least temporarily unable to provide safe care for them. And that needs to happen sometimes. But the unjust part is that we wouldn't have a safe alternative for that child. Sorry, you can't be with your family, but with all these people around us, we just can't find someone to care for you. That's unjust. It's unrighteous. And as a Christian community, as we reflect upon that, our own experience of God's welcoming, receiving, sacrificial love to bring us into his family compels us to be the kind of collective community that says, that's not okay. We should do something about this. We should be leading the way to say, there are kids who need families, what can we do? And for some, it means opening your home 
to care for them. For others, it means coming alongside those who are opening their home to support them, to wrap around them with encouragement, help, and care so that they're not in the journey alone. So one of the things we do with churches who engage with us is we help them not only raise up families, but form what we call wraparound teams to provide that kind of consistent, ongoing community that's part of the community we should have as, as a church, uh, but needs to be organized and more intentional in order to ensure that families are not only fostering or adopting, but they're doing so with sustainability and excellence in a home that's able to provide maximum hope and healing for those kids as long as they're with them. There's much more we could say about that. <clears throat> it's all rooted, though, in God's love for us. It's all rooted in the privilege we have of being children of God. And so coming back to the text, in whatever way this needs to be applied in your life, whoever it is in your family, in your work, in your community, within this church that God is calling you to be willing to lay your life down at cost, at risk, to not move away from, but to enter into their hard places and their affliction, all of that flows out of the incredible truth that God identifies you as his child. His identification of you as his child is an irrefutable demonstration that he loves you and he calls you to live in light of that reality with a hope rooted in as good as that is, the best is yet to come. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Will you live in light of that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done to invite us into your family. Thank you for inviting us to be part of what you're doing in this world, bringing hope and healing in so many different ways. And Lord, I do pray for every child in our community this moment who's in the just awful position of being removed from family and kind of bouncing around a, a system. We pray for them. We know that while we often forget them, you don't. You're their creator. They're made in your image. You know them by name and you care for them. So we pray that you would stir your church, your people, to extend to them the same kind of love you've given to us. We pray that the beauty and glory of your adopting love would just blaze through us. And we thank you that as we do, as we fight this battle, as we move forward, that we're not doing so threatened by loss of your love, but we're doing so in the security that now and forever we're your children. So would you uh, make that true here in this wonderful community at Cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen.